It's probably the least prepared I've ever been, which is good, isn't it? That's uh, my life. It's just a big old crazy bloody dash round it, life it, city. <laughs> it's a crazy dash around life city. Oh, Confucius. <laughs> <laughs> I see that you, I see you too, Gary, are, are a fan of ancient Chinese philosophy. Mm, mm, <laughs> the rickshaw of confusion. <laughs> oh, dear God. Bum, 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 bum. Oh, that's it, yeah. You've been listening then. I was like a mix between Scatman John and, and uh, Mastermind. That's what I was looking for. If only Scatman John had re- re-recorded Mastermind. <laughs> if only, right? You know, can you just imagine what that would have been like? <laughs> We're back. It's 2020, and it's the first episode of Making Games is Fun. And this one is with George Osborne. No, not that one. <laughs> That's the joke he gets every single day of his life on and off Twitter. Uh, George Osborne is the head of communications at Yuki. Now, Yuki is the trade network for UK games and interactive entertainment which I did not just read directly from their Twitter. Um, They're a trade body for UK, and they do all kinds of amazing things, which we get into during the course of the pod. Um, But we also take a look at George's life growing up and the games that he lived as a kid. We get stuck into that, because that's our favourite thing to chat about on this show. Uh, Plus we dig into his unending and quite frankly disturbing love of Rocket League and Football Manager. Um, I'm really excited to open with this episode for the new season, because George is not only a well of industry knowledge but a great talker and unbelievably silly we me and george have like a a really similar sense of humor um which means that any professional endeavors we've undertaken up to now have kind of been laced with unbearable stupidity throughout but we keep it to a minimum in the pod or to bearable levels because nobody wants to hear apart from me and george nobody wants to hear 60 minutes of us talking horse shit <laughs> um even though we really enjoy doing that so there's a little bit at the start just to give you a flavor of what we're like when we're in each other's company uh it's 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 horrific i quiz george on a variety of industry topics and we get a really good sort of deep dive and insight on the landscape of the industry because like you know his sometimes eccentric demeanor aside he knows a lot about the industry and it's really interesting stuff and he's a great talker so he can he can put it across the clarity and and in an entertaining way so as i say really pleased that george is the first guy on the new series of the new decade that sounds weird doesn't it right so without further ado or smaller do there's a smaller do and the ado is remember there is a patreon i'm not going to bore people with it it is at patreon.com forward slash m-g-i-f as in the initials to making games is fun without further ado now there are no ados left and we can actually start the pod with the very first episode of the new season it's making games is fun with george osborne
You're called George. I am indeed, yes. We've got small time here because you're a busy man. Uh, I, well, you know. Consummate professional. I mean, I mean, I at least have to project busyness. But who are you? But who am I? Oof. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm talking to various professionals about that at the moment. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think, well, broadly speaking, at this moment in time, my name really is George Osborne. It's just a horrible thing that happens. You sit there for your whole life thinking, you're not going to have any issues on social media. Then social media is invented. Yay. And then you realize that you share the same name as another person who is possibly not as popular as you but slightly better known. So that's, yeah. that's problematic. Um, but at this moment in time, I'm the head of communications for Yuki, which is the video games industry trade body that represents the UK industry. Um, and more generally, I am a man about town. <laughs> and that's where we are. That's where we Lovely recording area. Recording area. Um, I'm sort of jealous. I brought my own kit and I'm looking at better kit than I have. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking of a way to sort of swap it out. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the main thing is you just have to distract ESL. You know, mm. just sort of say, mm. oh my goodness me, is that an eSport in the corner? And <laughs> they're going to turn their heads. Cause that's, Where? Exactly. Because they're consummate professionals. Mm. Um, and always then at that point, always looking for the sport. So that, you know, you can sneak the marks out when they're sniffing doing that. Sniffing out eSport. Exactly. Left, right and centre. Yeah, sniffing an eSport. Mm, it's, yeah. It doesn't really work. It doesn't no. scan for me. No. <laughs> it scans in an uncomfortable way. It does scan. <laughs> it scans too well. Too well. <laughs> exactly. Mm. eSports. Do you know what I do with my guests, George? I take them back. Okay. That's where it all began. All right. That's uh, the way you sort of paused there. I was a bit worried. Did you know what I do with it? <laughs> I was like... There was a flicker of fear. It was, it was that, that Pinterest pause, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, it's that. Okay. So you take me back. I take okay. you way back. Okay. And where, where do you take As me back to? If it were the 90s, are you about my age? Uh, I'm, yes, 90s child. 90s uh, child. So it was, uh, it was March 1990. I it came was. Screaming. Oh, oh you've got you've got years on me yes well the, i mean the key thing about um being born is that uh, first of all it allowed me to exist which is obviously important we have um, to go that far back no but it, it's a good little anecdote because um apparently because I, I was born at home and apparently i heard ah. many years later that um my oldest brother punched my middle brother because uh, apparently he thought he was crying uh, when what? I was born, right? Obviously, you know, I was born, start crying. That's what you do as a baby, <laughs> right? Um, and my oldest brother, in a state of confusion, just punched my other brother. Wow, so, that's, there we go. That's, that's it. Emotions sowing discord from the moment <laughs> of, of of arrival. Um, but I think you probably weren't quite looking that far back, unless were. you were gaming at that point. Were you? No, I'm afraid not. Not not immediately. But if I'm if I'm going back and thinking what what my first sort of proper memories are, um, so I would have to say SNES era. Um, I'd be talking Super Tennis, Mario Kart, oh. original Mario Kart, Battle Mode, two-player, because Battle in Mario Kart, until fairly recently, was always better than racing. Really? Until uh, Look, what happened was... It was that up is until, controversial. It was up until the N64 era, and then what happened was Double Dash came out, and Double Dash ruined Battle. Okay, yeah. Um, and then after Double Dash ruined Battle, Nintendo haven't quite gotten the magic back. But seriously, like two-player battle snes mario kart fantastic um and yeah nintendo was the starting point for me in games really and in fact i've owned every nintendo console since so weirdly so i've got on the switch we've got the uh they've got the nes classics right yes. that they've brought up and my daughter she's seven she's played loads of the tennis yeah 
And I'm looking at it. She's going to get bored. It looks like ass, right? It's, it's yeah. going to be like... It's going to be, it's a, but, the, but the thing is, it's just like, it's a universal with, game. With tennis. respect. It exactly. Looks like with that. respect. But, but, you know, tennis is just... I mean, it's just a great game, Gary. Yeah. I mean, for goodness sake. Yeah. I mean, you Just know. found her absolutely hammering it. Because we started it together and doing the doubles. Yeah. And then another day I was doing some sort of parental thing. Yeah. A thing. And there she is, hammering out tennis and, and absolutely nailing it. Yeah, well, I mean, tennis games, you know, they're, they're, when well done, they're a particularly compelling video game type. I mean, I'll be honest, Mario Tennis on the N64, now that was a ridiculously well-made game. So that was done by Camelot. So obviously they, they did, did the Mario Golf series as well, which, again, decent series. But there was something about Mario Tennis on N64 that it was like weirdly purist, yeah. even though it was really simple. It yeah. was like, you know, topspin, backspin, yeah. running around. And yeah. that's basically all you had. But somehow when you were playing like against Luigi on the hardest difficulty in a five set match, yeah. you were like, oh my goodness me, is this Wimbledon? I think this is Wimbledon. <laughs> is, is, this Wimbledon? is this Wimbledon? I think this is, I think this is Wimbledon. Pretty sure I'm what, playing Wimbledon. I'm, I'm playing Wimbledon. It's, it's, it was very scary, but also quite fun. So mm. so that, that was going back. Um, but I mean, if, if I'm talking as well about really like games and defining stuff. So for yeah. me, it's, it's the N64. Um, it is Mario Kart on there. Um, so me and my oldest brothers, uh, so I've got two older brothers and a sister. Uh, so me and my brothers had Mario Kart Battle League, um, where basically we, we my middle brother drew a little chart <laughs> and we just tallied up our wins and just we had it that constantly running at so all the race points. was just didn't want even coming to the picture you just no, left it i mean the other thing as well is that so my middle brother will was freakishly good as in um so there was a, i can remember getting a printed mario uh cart like 64 guide which was talking about like the sort of the world's fastest lap times and things like that talking about the fact that japanese lap times were always faster than european ones <laughs> yeah. because the way the game was put together because of the different tv standards like the japanese one ran slightly faster yeah. but will was always consistently getting lap times that were basically putting him in like the european elite so it was never fun to play against him right so racing very quickly but then what i what i found about a decade later when i went to university and there was an n64 there is that apparently i was actually quite good at racing he was just a freak of nature yeah and that remains uh, my position on that matter um <laughs> but so so there's that and then and then goldeneye as well um and again you know having two brothers who had ridiculously high standards uh you know we played license to kill first to 20 um all of the aiming assists off it, it, it was a very brutal existence uh do you think sort of control-based things and skill-based games are still the thing you enjoy is that still true these days or have you sort of changed that so um i mean what i play most of now is rocket league yeah um, okay and rocket league is brilliant. I mean, I, I genuinely think like Rocket League is is in there as sort of my all time in my all time favorite games. I mean, firstly because you know I like football and video games and football video games. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's cards, it's cards, cards. football. Exactly. But the thing that's great about Rocket League twofold. Yeah, I, let's just look. Stop, stop laughing at my Rocket League sincerity. I can see it. I can see you. <laughs> no, no. It reminded me of a uh, friend of the show, Joe Scrabbles, when okay. we were talking about Rocket League yeah. when it first came out, and he we he said. Are the audience just loads of cars as well, just doing backflips? <laughs> I've always wondered that. I mean, actually, I mean, the weird thing is, is that if you actually look into the audience, they're just sort of large circular blobs. That's so future, not, mate. not even cars. I mean, it's a, it's a dystopian future that Psyonix have put for us. Um, but the thing I love about Rocket League, one, the fact that actually it is properly skill-based, that actually you watch someone who's never played Rocket League before play it, and then you see, I mean, I was literally posting a, a tweet earlier today of a pro player who scores the most ridiculous backflippy air goal you're ever yeah. going to see. And it's like, 
you have to learn to do that. So there's that element. And then the other element as well is like, you have to learn to be really good, but you also have to learn about like teamwork. And like, I always say that Rocket League, out of all the football video games that I play, I mean, football manager aside, because that's, you know, a game that I'm really known for playing and writing about and, you know, obviously a massive simulation of it. But if you're talking about games that feel most like football, Rocket League feels more like football than either FIFA or PES. Yeah, that's what a lot of people say, yeah. Because it's all about positioning. It's all about your role within a team. Whereas the others feel as if you're sort of like conducting an orchestra and you're sort of passing the ball around and it's like a sort of a TV style performance and you're trying to score a goal that way. With Rocket League, it's got that pressure of... I have got myself completely out of position here. Someone is about to score. I am in a terrible place. Oh my goodness me. And that kind of pressure gives it a completely different feel to it. I mean, yeah. that's not the most fun bit of Rocket League, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> but it reminds me of football. So, you know. But that's what keeps people playing because it's kind of, because everything's pared down to just this is a ball, it's got yeah. physics on it. Here's, here are some cars, they've got physics on them. Knock yourself out. Yeah. And then you, everything else comes, like this kind of, the meta, I suppose, yeah. you would argue. That's it. And that's the bit that people just make up as they play. You know, like formations are not, you don't set a formation, you do it yourself and everything's yeah. just free. And, and this is the thing. It's like, it becomes about you and your teammates sitting down and playing together regularly. So I've got, got a good little Rocket League crews like myself, a guy called Alex, a guy called Laurie, and we play, now we play like every weekend. And you start thinking about things like rotation, like who's going up for the ball, who's yeah. coming next. Um, you make sure that you're covering each other. So, you know, the meta, it, it becomes that team dynamic. And so that makes it really, really sociable. It also makes Rocket League an awful, awful experience online if you're playing by yourself and yeah. killing random people because yeah. you have no chemistry and you all hate each other by default because like, oh, I can't believe this complete idiot <laughs> missed the ball, you say, as you've just missed a really easy shot. But generally, yeah, so, so Rocket League um, is the big thing I'm still playing. Football Manager, I've played for over 20 years, back since the, since the Champ Man days. Uh, literally thousands of hours sunk into it um, and I had a brief stint as the industry's football manager expert Ooh. which was weird because it ended up with me working on a fancy football scripting job at BT Sports on a live TV show <laughs> very strange um, they ended up saying that they wanted to add some fancy football content to their live results show BT Sports School and I ended up for a year and a half sitting in a studio in Stratford watching live football every Saturday and writing about what the Applications were for people's fancy football teams and that came because people were like you look at spreadsheets you big nerd because yeah. you play football manager and i was like well you've got me bang to rights there so that's yeah so the so fm rocket league and then there's usually something else in the rotation and at the moment is the witness but it changes all the time <laughs> went to university and um so you know this is like me not i'm not even sure if this is a humble brag or just a terrible admission that i went went to cambridge <laughs> okay. university um yeah. but i met up with i met up with someone actually who was in the year below fairly recently um and he really liked games um but i never knew he liked games until two weeks ago when oh. he found out what my job was and he came in and was like can we meet up and the thing was is because when we were at university it was like you don't you didn't talk about games 
right? Right, okay. It's just like, because basically there is this um, slight upper-class snobbery against video games. Sure, that, you yeah. Know, it's rotting the brain, addictive, yada, yeah. yada, yada, all stuff that there is no evidential basis for at all. But the idea that if your child isn't reading Tolstoy by the age of 12, you know, they're going to be completely morally corrupted. It's seen as culturally uh, low. Just culturally inept. Culturally low. Culture, <laughs> culturally, <laughs> culturally low, culturally inept. And it's obviously not the case. I mean, that's complete and utter rubbish. Uh-huh. But it's one of those things where actually, during university you know I was playing some stuff a bit of sort of classic stuff like N64 GameCube and a bit of Football Manager and that was about it and then I came out of university I took a really absolutely bad market research job where I was just like I did it for three months and absolutely hated it I was living in Cambridge at the time and I ended up working at a tech startup around the time so I was working at a tech startup but I was also doing a little bit of writing for a local tech publication as a sort of an intern basis just to sort of get myself some experience and around that time I started writing about um, it was when video game tax relief was still going through the European Commission and stuff so I started to write some stories about that because there were businesses in Cambridge who were doing it and then when I was working for this tech startup it was an advertising company and it was an advertising company back in the early days of mobile um, apps and things like that and it was when the shift was taking place from Angry Birds being the 79p, 99p game that, you know, topped the charts by being a paid game to free to play. And so when free to play came, mobile advertising just went turbo and all of the clients for this company were games companies. So I started talking with them on a day to day basis. Uh. And so what happened was I had realized this company worked with games businesses and was able to be like, hey, look, give me a job as the guy who writes your copy for your ads because, you know, I really get games and I can get to grips with these games because often you would get a campaign booked the night before. I'd have to sit and play the game, be able to piffily summarize it in like 200 characters and get it all translated by 5 p.m. the next day. Mm. So they needed someone who got games. I did. I went into there and I was like, oh, actually, this is a job. Oh, and then I was went from being an intern to being like an actual sort of content content marketer, I guess, and then ended up as the head of content there. So that was pretty much how I started out. It was not a considered course, shall we say? Yeah, I was more a series of fortunate events in a oh, contrast to Lemony Snicket. <laughs> series of really nice things that happened exactly nice things that happened that i just got a bit jammy on you know but it doesn't fit on the front of the cover no it doesn't really um i've seen that's what i've found speaking to a lot of people is that very few not everyone but very few people um thought this is going to be my career i'm going to be in games they just kind of eventually went oh wait uh some revelations were oh there are actually people who make them yeah (laughs) <laughs> and don't just sort of pop out. Oh, magic. Ding! Um, and then it's, oh, I could do that. Yeah. And it's just the the education around it. And especially the idea that you can work in games or around games and you don't have to know how to program, for example. Yeah. And there's right. actually many roles. There's like, I mean, exactly. There's a whole ecosystem. And I mean, the thing is, is um, I mean, obviously working with Yuki, you really start to see that because Yuki's got, 466 members and there's two and a half thousand businesses in the UK that, that essentially have a sort of a games focus um, so it's coming up towards Yuki representing like really solidly like 20% of the industry and when you look across its membership you know you've got the leading international publishers you've got your Nintendo Sega EA you've got a load of great independent companies as well independent developers smaller sort of mid-sized studios you know aspirational ones people like Coatsync and then you've got the lawyers 
who represent the video games industry. You've got the accountants. You've got the insurance salespeople who are, who are starting to recognize that there are specific cases for insuring video game businesses in a different way to other sectors. And what's happening as a result of the sector getting to the size it is today, where it's genuinely like probably the biggest global creative industry, is that there are this huge range of jobs within the industry making games in a variety of different ways. But then there's also the support levels to it. So community management, you've got things like um, going into the sort of more HR-y side really starting to develop. And then obviously you've got all of these support services too. But I think what's happening is we're slowly going through a process where as the industry matures, those things are starting to stabilize a bit more. But there's also this still weird innovative edge to the industry, which means that at any point, a new job can just exist. And at which point, like for me, mobile advertising, a decade earlier, it didn't exist because it was J2ME phones. It was WAP. It was like, you know, genuinely like there was no infrastructure for it. Yeah. And then one decade later, it's, touch screens ad networks those kinds of information and then under a decade on from that it's you know massively targeted facebook ads hugely granulated data it moves so quickly and that means that in the industry you often don't realize there's a job there until well you stood there and then you're like oh i'm the person okay i'm the am i am i the innovator i'll put that on my linkedin sort of look around behind you going is this Oh, how it's me. Oh, it's me. Cripes. Exactly. And you're just a bit like, uh, do you know, your shirt. You know, you're just pulling the ejector lever that's yeah. sort of positioned near your desk. Rebutton um, your trousers. Exactly. And, and just go, oh, blimey. Um, but yeah. So, but one of the things is like, yeah, um, the industry, I think, is starting to formalize those roots into it a bit more. But it's still a bit of a, oh, there's an opportunity. And if you see the opportunity and you can wedge the door open, wedge that door open. Wedge that door. Wedge that door. There we go. That's metaphorically. Uh, metaphorically. Confucius. Exactly. Confucius. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. From his from his classic text. Not literally, obviously. Not literally, obviously. Con <laughs> Confucius. That was his second album, wasn't it? Okay. <laughs> What's going down? But Yuki, right now? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, thank you very much for asking. Kate. Well, you know, I figured you'd be the guy to ask. Yeah, right? exactly. And what, what I did there was I just stalled for enough time to allow my brain to properly work <laughs> um, But, I mean, so Yuki, I mean, one of the things about Yuki is that it's genuinely constantly busy. So there is this constant drum of work that it's doing. Um, that constant drum of work? Con the constant drum, the constant drum, of, drum work. of work. That, that phrase doesn't even make sense. Uh, <laughs> there is a consistent drumbeat to what it's doing. So it's always doing things like providing member service, so giving advice to members. If members, say, wants to speak to another member about an issue, we'll connect them up. Um, we do things like our trade missions, so... Gamescom, GDC, China Joy, every year those things are happening. Uh, and we've got our policy team who are always talking to MPs, doing consultations, everything like that, um, just to make sure that we're always having our voice heard. Um, and then just all kinds of other little bits and pieces around the side. So things like Ask About Games, which is a resource for parents, giving them advice about how to play safe and sensibly. Digital Schoolhouse, which is a play-based learning initiative supported by Nintendo, which basically goes to 55 schools across the country and supports them. And then all of just the other stuff we're doing. But specifically, Yuki has been dealing with, I think, what can be described as a challenging year for the industry, probably a challenging two years. Mm. Um, I would 
try to say and especially sort of try and say it sort of without too much hyperbole but it has probably been one of the most challenging periods for the industry in a couple of decades so the last time you would sort of say there's been a comparable challenge to the ones i think we faced it would be um the struggles the uk industry had after the crash in 2008 where a lot of businesses went to the wall and there was a real fear there that the uk industry as a whole could go and then the video game violence stuff especially sort of around um you know, the late 90s, early noughties, where especially around when Columbine happened, like that was a real pinch <clears throat> moment. Yeah. Um, and there's quite a, f- uh, the big reason why it's been so challenging is that it's been challenging on a few fronts, really. So I'm just trying to think about all of the different fronts. Front. Yeah, and some of those some of those things are resurfacing as well, aren't they? Especially the sort of, well, it's the violence, and but also with relation to addiction and other things and sort of responsible um responsible gaming and and parental responsibilities around it and things like that yeah and it's that and and it's a bit grayer these days because some of those people who lived through the first uh controversies have have grown up a bit and and have um some i may have parental responsibilities such as myself exactly and and it's this slightly grayer area where you go well there are points in what you're saying it's just that then they're unrefined but as someone who's grown up with gaming, I can I can see it a bit better and with slightly less hysteria and with a with a more level head on, and, and it's about explaining to those people what exactly that, that's it. Because so I mean, one of the challenges we've got is that I think games are in a bit of a moral panic territory moment. So there's been a few things that feed, have fed into that. So the World Health Organization and their decision to include the term gaming disorder within their international classification of diseases earlier this year. That was really controversial. Um, The WHO was going to include it in 2018 as opposed to 2019 this year, but they then had a hasty literature review after there was a significant backlash from academics about it because they were concerned about the inclusion of gaming disorder because if you control C, control V, the term gaming and replace it, say, with something like golf or football, there's a very real risk that you could just pathologize anything that people enjoy and spend time doing. So there was a lot of concern about that, but it happened. They made their decision, you know, whatever, got to move on. Um, But then on top of that, you know, there's been a few sort of specific challenges around things like online harms in the UK. So the government has been producing a white paper about that, where they're trying to make the UK the safest place to be online in the world. But there is a sort of sense of times where it could sort of descend into mission creep or potentially become really quite restrictive because the people drafting the legislation don't know how tech works fully um, and similarly for the age appropriate design code which is something else the policy team have been dealing with this year which is this really greatly spirited document which is let's make sure that we protect our kids online and make sure that we do things like privacy by design for children but when you read the terms and conditions of it it can basically be like so you offer a betting service for eight you know people who are 18 plus but because kids can theoretically access it you need to write your terms and conditions in seven different variants for children of age three five nine you know whatever right because they could theoretically get it so you're in these kind of like weird situations but the big thing is is like all of that stuff's going down the real problem is just the sort of general mood music in the world so you know because there's the whole thing like it's sort of out of moral panic territory, right? Uh, moral panics, if you read about moral panic theory, like I do in my spare time because I'm a boring person, <laughs> they brew up at times of 
cultural conflict or cultural challenge. So the Salem witch trials, the example I always reach to, where people talk about, you know, this village in America where, you know, witch trials were conducted, huge numbers of people were killed as a result of them. Obviously, they weren't witches. I mean, you know, that's pretty fundamentally obvious. Um, but the whole context to it and the whole, the whole mood music behind it is that Salem was on the front line of basically battles between Native Americans and the American settlers who had come over. And so what happened was people in there were living in this kind of climate of fear. Like, was their village going to be overrun? Was Were they going to be slaughtered? And within that, that is the kind of context where moral panics brew because you're living in a complex situation which you can't explain. So you find reductive answers and reductive challenges. And what the industry needs to do is, on the one hand, it needs to be strongly evidence-based. It needs to say, here is the evidence. Because at the moment, there is no robust evidence at all that things like video games are addictive. There is no academic evidence that supports that. So they need to be, as an industry, confident enough to say it while also being compassionate. Mm. Because it doesn't matter that the evidence isn't there if people feel concerned. We've got to still talk to them. We've got to still approach them as people. Because yeah. if we don't do that, then what's going to happen is people will have a knee-jerk reaction people who are scared and uncertain and unsure at these times will reach for an easy solution to their what they perceive to be their problems and we as an industry could end up suffering when all we have to do is just be responsible Hmm. and take our responsibility seriously it also drives a wedge between people as well because you've got this kind of well all i want to do it, it gives the impression that the games industry is saying all we want to do is sort of legally prove that it isn't addictive so we can't get in trouble and as you say that that sort of line of thinking or, or that way of presenting oneself is yeah without compassion or seemingly you're, you're creating sides there whereas you want to sort of be saying yeah well we take it seriously we'll look into it at the moment we think you shouldn't worry um, but it's about bringing people on onto your side rather than going. You're over there. You can't prove anything. You got nothing on us, cops. Yeah, you got, you got you got nothing on us. Boom. And 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 it's it's a really good point because actually, you know, like you say. So the first point is like you run the risk of not of sounding like you don't care or sounding like you don't care about your players. Now, the one thing that I know, having worked in the industry, is how much people care. People want people to have fun. That's the reason why you go to make video games. It's the reason why people in this industry take significant salary cuts in comparison to, say, working in maybe, I don't know, fintech. Like, we're in Farringdon. We're just around the corner from the banking sector. If you were a developer, if you wanted to go and make real money, you could go down the road and make an absolute killing. But you choose not to because you want to create things that entertain people. You want to create things with cultural significance you want to create stuff that people keep coming back to but if you use the wrong kind of language and you come across as too defensive people miss that and then they also miss all of the work that the industry does do on these kinds of fronts so like age ratings you know like that is the sort of the historical example where we pushed for their age ratings like once we had introduced them we were the ones who were pushing to let's make this a legal standard because if we do that gives confidence to people that they can trust what they're buying that they can walk into the shop and know that an 18 is not suitable for little timmy you know we've done that kind of thing and we've more recently done a lot of other great things as well like if you look at like parental controls on all of the major consoles they really are pretty robust the problem is is that we just haven't been telling our story well enough on that we've not been going out and saying that these are the kinds of things we're doing these are the ways that we're helping because when 
someone spends too much in a game and they don't want to, that's not actually good for us as an industry. It's not good for the companies either. And they do recognize this. This is the reason why they support things like you can cap your spend in a game if you turn on the controls. But it's one of those things that we as an industry need to communicate that more effectively because otherwise people think, like you say, one, we don't care. Two, we don't take our responsibility seriously. And three, and this is the where government goes, if you're not doing those two things, then you're kind of like a rogue actor. And that is where regulation comes in. And when you have MPs and parliamentarians drawing up regulation, you've got a real problem because they do not understand games. And it's not their fault because games are constantly changing, games are constantly evolving, and we know the terrain much, much better than they do. But if we don't self-regulate, they'll regulate. And if they regulate, that could be a big problem for us. Yeah, and you could see that in um, that recent discussion they had um, where they brought... Um, you see the two fronts of government, as you were saying, and um, it was EA and... Um, Epic. Epic Games, yeah. And they had... Did you see that... Were they, yeah, were they, so um, I, I watched the whole thing. In yeah. fact, Yuki, I mean, if you go back and look at the footage, you can actually see that there's a lot of the Yuki team sitting behind as well. Oh, because, is that right? Okay, so... Because you're allowed to attend the sessions. And so yeah. I, I was actually watching it remotely, but a lot of the Yuki team went to go and watch that session and as well. And it was about loot boxes particularly. Yeah. And, um, and you could see that kind of wedge between the two sides where they were on the government side they were they were asking questions where they were the brows were furrowed because it was like they're trying to understand the plot of something really like a really yeah obscure and, and obtuse film wasn't it so, so they're going so what is so so the box so you open the box so is it what you know and the, and you could see the difference of them just going what i yeah. really need to i'm trying to get my head around this this is totally alien yeah and you could see that divide and at the same time you could see some of the answers particularly from epic would felt so un, underprepared for, for that environment you know and they they were they were getting these questions and they had no idea of how to um uh allay is allay the correct word allay their fears yeah is that right i think allay yep yeah, uh, that's the word yeah yeah it's a, a word swage, we know exactly we know what we're talking um about. you know and and to say well don't worry this is how it works or to have any kind of sort of significant answer to it there was there was a real gap there as well and i guess that's where a body like yuki comes in to to, to bridge that which which you could you could feel the gap you could yeah. feel the chasm I, I mean you know there was there was the point where where one of the committee members asked um the creators of Fortnite. um so they said because they 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 shifted because they shifted back and forth a bit they did some stuff on loot boxes they also did some stuff about talking about video game addiction one of the members of the committee went so I've Googled Fortnite is addictive and it's produced a lot of search results. Do you think this means that Fortnite is addictive? Um, and that's, you know, sounds like I'm being mean, but it's just like, but it's the point is it's a question of digital literacy, right? And it's something that we're sort of really hot on anyway at Yuki is that we think that, you know, improving digital literacy everywhere is good. And one of the best ways to do it, especially when we're talking about the specific issues with games, is to get people like parents, politicians playing games. Because mm. once you play them, a lot of the fears go away. One of the things, like, generally, I think the, you, the big point that you're coming to is as an industry and as an industry body, one of the big things we have to do, and really successfully, and we need support from the industry as well to do this, is to actually go and explain these things to these people. And it's something we, we constantly do. So, you know, we talk a lot about, like, the UK Gambling Commission because um, they decided that loot boxes weren't gambling. 
um, because they looked at them and they said, well, you can't cash them out. Uh, whenever you put money into them, you do always get something in return, which is different to how gambling functions. Yeah. Like if you put a tenner on the football and your team loses, you lose your cash. That's not how a loot box works. But the reason why they were able to draw that con- kind of conclusion is because we were talking to them and we were saying like, look, okay, you're looking at this. Can we just come in and explain like how this works? Uh, can we sit down with you and explain how the mechanics work and just do this in a factual way? And then also sort of talk to you about some other things you're concerned with. So for example, skin betting sites, you know, so the sites like Counter-Strike, Go, you know, the, the CSGO lotteries yes. and secondary sites where people trade in game currencies and things like that. Like, What's happened, and one of the big things that we're having a big challenge with at the moment, and I think one of the reasons why this conflation has happened between loot boxes and that, is because these markets exist where people do go and gamble stuff. Mm. But those markets are illegal, because if you look at the end-user licensing agreements of all of the games that um, essentially have these kinds of currency, and they say, you can't do this, like because this is it's literally taking like someone else's intellectual property and playing around with it but the problem is is that because often these sites look pretty slick and professional and people write to mps saying like you know my kid went onto a skin betting site and lost a load of things and they said that these skins were worth this much they go well hang on a minute why are all these companies allowing gambling and it's like well they're not like if you, I mean, in that session as well, like EA were talking about the work they've done with the National Crime Agency and the FBI to shut these sites down in the UK and the US. But we have to be able as an industry to go and talk to those people fairly about it. Because when we chat to the Gambling Commission about it, you know, sort of when we're having those kinds of conversations, they were willing to listen because they actually want to get the right answer. They don't want it to be just... Yeah, we'll just add some more work to our plate because we want it because we're power hungry people. (laughs) It's like we want to protect consumers. We want to actually do our jobs. And actually when we're able to go forward and tell those stories, we're able to represent the industry. But we need, first of all, people who are willing within these companies across the sector to come and talk to us to tell their sides of the stories. And then just for them to be happy for us to go and do it. Because if we're able to we're able to circumvent so many problems at an early stage. And just having that open dialogue means that, that we clear a lot of hurdles. But if we don't do that, regulation could be a coming. And that, that's a real risk for us. One of the things about these select committees is, you know, they had a lot of people that they, you know, they had King, EA, Epic, Jagex. They had a couple of indie developers, but they didn't speak to the indie dev scene particularly extensively. You know, we sort of, you know, because people sort of say to us, well, video games are addictive. And it's just like, well, I mean, Return of the Obra Dinn is about you being an insurance inspector on board a ship in, I think it's the the 18th century. I mean, it's just like, oh, you know, I'm absolutely hooked up to that, playing that for hours on end, making notes. What happened to the midshipman, Gary? What happened? I just need, I just need, exactly, I just need my next Obra Dinn hit. It's like, it's, it's a, there are completely different business models. Yes. There are completely different games and it's, 
it's not even like within cinema where actually like you know the distribution of film even if it's independent versus you know massive blockbuster it's still sort of fairly similar mm. it's just done on a different scale yeah. within games there's so much variety and variation yeah. that you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to everything but that doesn't mean you don't need to have the discussions with people to try and explain mm. this and talk it through and as an industry as well discuss what we think is acceptable yeah. because i think that's that's the key thing is that actually we as an industry are pretty good at self-regulating we're pretty good at caring about our players mm. like it's actually you know especially if anyone sits on twitter and looks at industry like for the most part you can see how much people care but if we're not having that conversation noisily enough and we're not telling the right people that we're doing it and showing them the work we're doing there's a real risk that they think it's not happening at all so you know it's 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 a real it's a it's a really tricky situation and you know you've got all of this going on against like especially in the uk the backdrop of things like brexit which we know the industry um has a lot of legitimate concerns about you know like the workforce data flows so it's it's one of those times where as an industry we really need to be active and on the front foot and actually going and telling our story better um, because if we do that we can actually start getting ourselves out of a lot of the challenges we're facing and go back to doing the things that we want to do which is make great games and just you know have fun that's yeah. it have some fun just eh? have some have bloody some fun. fun have some bloody fun exactly come on i know that it sounded very serious for me there gary for a bit well, this is great I'm, I'm i'm almost i'm spellbound I'm because sp- oh spellbound i'm used to only because it's, yeah. this is a backhanded compliment yeah. <laughs> only because i'm used to sticking about uh, well yeah. furiously that's dicking it about. yeah i mean the last so i'm just looking at george is this george exactly the last time we were in the office we were we were doing my headshots and we were basically doing some serious <laughs> posing so yeah. you know that was and i, I can remember at one point being doubled over of laughter yeah so it's a it's a it's a, it's a tonal shift it's quite the tonal shift no quite but it's, it's good shift. it's good um that's something another reason i think games are in this spot at the moment i think there is a positivity to it because as you say every other medium films i don't need to i don't need to name the medium yeah because the media because we know what they are yes. i don't need to go very yeah. much, the other ones right yeah I'm not going to show off and tell you, show off like, oh, I know what they all are. Ooh. Oh, hello. Hello. He's got a few under his belt, hasn't he? Oh, hello, books. Mr. Hobbies. Oh, music. Ooh. Ooh, I've Ooh. heard about that. Another one, eh? Oh. Um, <laughs> they're all, they're all, you know, you say to someone, do you like music? And yeah. uh, there are some people who go, I don't, don't like music, but, they're weird. you know, if you go, sorry, I mean, yeah, they're, like, <laughs> they're 100% weird. I'm not going to ever try that. It's, it's, it's odd, isn't it? Yeah, it's very um, odd. <laughs> And that's the thing. You say, well, of course you like some music, right? And there'll be a point where we'll, we'll get to where it's the same with games. You'll go, do you play games? And you go, well, yeah, obviously. There's, yeah. yeah, of course I do. And, it, and it's that thing where, as you say, there's no one size fits all. It's yeah. not that... And I mean, that that's the case now, but it's just people both within, not just the industry, but within the culture of games. Yeah. There's a discomfort there. Yeah. As well as... Uh, maybe a disbelief or a confusion for people outside the industry or, or outside the culture that go, well, are they still bleep, bleep, bloop, bloops? Yeah, so this is the, this is the interesting thing. And you thing. go, actually, they're oh. bleep, bleep, bloop, bloops on purpose. Exactly. That's it. Because, it's, because actually, <laughs> these bleep, bleep, bloop, bloops are an ironic recreation <laughs> of 1980 thing within this specific context by this in, intelligent independent developer. Ooh. And they go, 
I'm going to go, go over here I'm now. Just and I'm going to play Tetris 99 instead, which incidentally, banger. That is still mate, mate, what a game. Um, but seriously, though, I mean, the, the, the things you're talking about there actually touch on two big things that we're talking about at the moment, and we talk about a lot here. So the first one is, and this is sort of known within people's people who really talk to us like regularly, like especially anyone who talks to Joe. So in terms of Yuki Star Guy, who's Joe? Sorry, Joe is the CEO. So Joe Twist, yes, yes, I was one wonderful CEO, captain, leader, legend. Uh, yes. I mean, I think that was John Terry. Actually, that was used to refer to. Uh, <laughs> that was a different JT. I apologise to Joe. John Terry. The indi- exactly, the not not quite. Not that, that we get, That's <laughs> going to be struck struck for the record. <laughs> that's how dare you. Um, but so, in terms of the Yuki Star Guide, uh, the words gamer and gaming are both banned. We are not allowed to use them in the organization. And the reason why, well, there's the, the two of those. So, first of all, gaming. Um, the gambling industry is calling its activities gaming now in an attempt to whitewash what it's doing. Yes, okay. And so, we don't use the term gaming because it's now being conflated with gambling and causing confusion. Gamer, we don't use that term either because it's such a loaded stereotype. Mm. But like you say, for example, you ask that question, like, do you listen to music? Do you watch films? And people go, yeah, well, yeah, you know, even if it's like, oh, I just watch the Marvel films or, oh, you know, I just watch a trashy rom-com or whatever it would be. With games, what happens is you go, are you a gamer to someone? And they go, no. And then you go, all right, but have you played Tetris? Yeah. Have you played Mario Kart? Yeah. Have you played Candy Crush Saga? Yeah, of course I have. Right, so you do play games, right? But you don't want to identify with gamer because it's loaded with significance that a lot of people... I mean, like, if you look at, like, research from, like, people like Nesta, who are an organisation we work with, the demographic of people who play games in the UK is much older, uh, much more evenly split along gender lines than, you know, the industry who are advertising towards gamers will ever expect. Um... But so what happens is they just don't identify it. So we just talk about people who play games, um, which sounds like I'm basically just sort of plugging Chris Bratt's thing, isn't it? Or what is it? <laughs> don't like people don't who, mention people his people name make on this, People on who make games, exactly. He's, who? 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 going to bleep him out. Exactly. We'll bleep him. We'll bleep out any mention of Bratt as if it's like some sort of horrible <laughs> swear word. He's a very, very nice man. So I feel bad for saying this. No, Bratt is absolutely lovely. He's, he's, a, guy. he's a lovely. So that's the thing. So first of all, we try and do that. And then the other thing is about just um, acceptance. So... It's all got to be contextualized in the fact that the video games industry... So Yuki is the oldest video games trade body in the world. It's 30 years old. Um, you're recording this the day before our 30th birthday party where we're all going, we're all going out for jelly and ice cream because, you, know, you know, 30th birthday. Again, maturity in the industry. Exactly, yeah. maturity in the industry, whatever. Um, whatever, Gary. Um, <laughs> but that means that um, Yuki was founded shortly before the Berlin Wall came down, right? So that's how young it is. It's 30 years for a trade body. Now, if you think about film or TV, so if you think about cinema, you're probably talking, it's probably now reasonably speaking 100 years Mm. in cinema. TV, you know, 90 to 100 years, again, like there's that kind of thing there. Literature, thousands of years. Music, thousands of years. Mm. Games, 40. So you have... And the other, sorry to jump in, the other thing about television and cinema... Yeah is there was a more tangible link between literature and cinema because you're yep. still telling a linear story. It's just uh, represented in a different way. So it's the, it was less of a jump yep. between the two. Exactly. And it's had longer. It was less of a jump. 
and it, yet it's still like film and TV all still attracted the same kind of moral panics and controversies that video yeah. games have done. Um, but then with video games, you know, I think it was um, Naomi Alderman who talked about it as a medium. You know, it's just like the, the thing that defines them is agency and you don't have agency in any other creative mean. You know, you're listening to music, you're watching a film, you're not being the character, you're not taking the game, you're not playing it, you're not the person who's sort of in command of your own destiny. And actually agency is a powerful thing but for someone on the outside looking at someone who's completely immersed in the game like this is point peter etchell makes in his book lost in a good game it can look disorienting it can look confusing like oh my god that person is sitting there and they've sat there for what 90 minutes two hours and they're completely engrossed and they're completely immersed and if you don't play games that's scary yeah people get people get weirded out by it but it's one of those things where actually generationally you know the more people who play games the less weird it is and mm. the more time goes on the more that society will at some point reach a tipping point where everyone alive has played a game and everyone alive understands how a video game works at which point a lot of the problems that the industry are going to face will suddenly disappear and they might move on to somewhere else or it might just be the case that they actually carry on but they're sort of just dialed down quite a bit but as an industry what we need to just recognize is that we're still building you know we're still we are still at the point where we're laying our foundations yes we might be this global globally significant creative medium generating loads of money and whatever and employing loads of people around the world already but we're actually still in our infancy and we need to kind of plan ahead and we need to think not just about because the industry is obviously very good at this. What is the hot release coming up this month? What's happening at the next E for it? You know, it's like, we're yeah. very good at that. But what we actually need to start thinking is like, what's the next five years looking like? What's the next 10 years looking like? And for us, you know, we've been doing our 30 years of play campaign to celebrate our 30th birthday. One of the things we're trying to think about is, well, what could it look like in 30 years? Because if we start thinking in those kinds of horizons, a lot of the problems we face where people don't get games will go because everyone will play games. And then at that point, can you imagine what that would be like? That would be great. I mean, I'll be, you know, over the hill by that point. So, you know, whatever. But... Just get a Twitch. Exactly. Twitch yeah, exactly. Exactly. A Twitch tri- Twitch Tron. Because that's what it'll be in 30 <laughs> years time. It'll be like, like the word Tron very, to make it futuristic. Exactly. It'll just be very neon. Beamed holographically. No. Hologramically. No, well, wait. Actually, hologramically. Yeah. It, in fact, it'll be the Twitch 2049. So, Twitch you know, that's it. It'll, just, it'll just be me... <laughs> It'll be me chilling out with the replicant version of Ryan Gosling. Um, just trying to sort of work out what's been going down. You, so, and, you and the Gosballs chatting. Yeah, exactly. It's Gosborn and Gosling. That's, uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I've broken Gary. There we are. I've broken him completely. Gosborn. So, like, like that was, that was. Brad and Jennifer. What was it? Brennifer. Yeah. No. What so was it? I, I, I think it was uh, Brangelina. Brangelina. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but for Gosborn, it was just uh, someone at university who just decided, saw it when it was G. Osborne on like a name thing. And then it was just like Gosborn. And then at that point, it was like, oh, goodness me, this is going to stick, isn't it? And it has stuck. Um, so, so, yeah. So do feel free to call me that at future industry events. I will. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we, we need to stop this now. <laughs> we need to stop now. <laughs> for, for a number of reasons. So many reasons. So many reasons.